There had been a couple other books that had already covered the corporate landscape. These are many of these companies, in fact, have refused to take on funding for specific reasons because they want to be able to experiment and do some of these things that are slightly crazy. It's easier when you don't have to investors. And so the landscape, I could write about so many more companies in this book and I wish we had more space and time to do that. But we tried to just showcase a few different, not just industries, but even within the chapter on soil, it's not just food companies. We also have a footwear brand and what they're doing to source rubber from the Amazon and what they're doing to work with cotton farmers. So to get people to understand that these issues really can affect a variety of consumer products that you might be interacting with on a daily basis. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. I want to start today with a simple question. What do you think the role of business should be if we want to really create that better world, restore the way our environment is shaped, and build something that can create equanimity and equality for everybody. One in which all earthly beings can enjoy individual freedoms and pursue their dreams. We've spent a fair amount of time talking about regeneration on this very show, from telling the stories of featured guests like Paul Hawken, who authored Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, to our connection with Tom Newmark, who founded the Carbon Underground and who focuses on bringing carbon back home to the soil beneath our feet. We've likewise connected with entrepreneurs who seek to solve critical operational problems to be businesses for the greater good. You heard from Carlo Mondavi of Monarch Tractor and how their fully autonomous and fully electric tractor can change the future of farming. And of course, there are those seeking to change how we store and use energy too. But the bigger question behind all of this is somewhat simple. Can we actually harness the power of a more regenerative business model, a more regenerative economy so that we can actually heal the world? Today, I'm joined by Esha Chabra. She's a Forbes contributor and author of the new book, Working to Restore, which has released on March 21st, 2023. Esha has been a writer and journalist focused on global development, environment, and business for over a decade. In addition to Forbes, her work has appeared in the New York Times, Economist, Guardian, The Washington Post, Fast Company, Wired, and more. So whether you know it or not, you've likely already read her words. She goes beyond greenwashing to determine if companies are actually pushing the needle. Her work has been supported by the UN Foundation and the Pulitzer Center in Washington, D.C. Esha is a graduate of Georgetown University and the London School of Economics and Political Science. She calls Southern California home. I'm so happy to offer her the stage today. Esha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It was such a lovely intro. Thank you. Thought a lot about this topic as we were just commiserating, I think, about the current state of the world and how there is yet hope, whether you're currently experiencing temperatures that are over hot on parts of the globe or far too much water, as I'm presently experiencing here and you as well in Southern California, we see the ravages of what's happening in our world and our daily lives 
So I think this is something we all have to confront. One of the topics that I've touched on a lot throughout this show is simply that while we can try to take a personal responsibility for certain things, it's really not appropriate to just constantly push it back on the consumer. Oh, what is your carbon footprint? What difference are you making? When the way we've structured capitalism has promoted an extractive business model where we're looking to save a dime here and there and everything's the power of the new God, which seems to be money and Wall Street. So how do we change that? I know you're seeking to answer that in part with your book, and I know it's a big question. Before we do that, before we really dive in, I would just love to hear a little bit about your origin story so that our audience can get to know why you chose to undertake this effort. Absolutely. Those are all very big questions. We'll try to answer them in 45 minutes. My origin story, I always wanted to be a journalist. I went to undergrad at Georgetown, as you mentioned, and I was working in DC and doing political news at the time as an intern and as a student. And I just felt like some of these stories that I personally felt were more important were not getting front center attention. And so I went off and I was given a fellowship by Rotary, which is an incredible organization that I didn't know much about, to be honest, as a 17, 18 year old, because most Rotarians were much older. And that leads me to the world of humanitarian work throughout the world. These organizations that are just coming together of civic leaders and doing incredible humanitarian work. That landed me in the center of the global polio eradication effort, which is something that Rotary was really involved with, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and WHO and UNICEF. I started traveling and writing about global health stories, and that got picked up by The Guardian and some of these other places. And I started realizing like I could work as a freelancer writing about these kind of mission-oriented stories and solutions and get them into major publications. I then came along David Bornstein, who's this incredible journalist who started something called the Solutions Journalism Network, which you might find interesting, which is trying to write about solutions and share solution-oriented stories in mainstream media, but in a critical way. So it's not just celebratory, here's a solution, but it's like, let's talk about it, break it down, does it work, does it not work kind of thing. And that was really the kind of schooling that I got in journalism. And through his guidance, I then started to focus on writing about companies and individuals and social entrepreneurs that were bringing solutions to many different industries. And so for the last 10 years, I have focused a lot on mission-driven companies. I think we've seen that evolution from in the early days when I was writing about it, it was called corporate social responsibility. Microfinance was a big part of that movement. And financial kind of inclusion was a big part of that movement. And now you've seen it really with B Corps and benefit corporations and just changing the whole overall structure of business. So that's me in a nutshell for the last 10, 15 years. But I really do believe that as journalists, we do have the opportunity to also highlight the solutions. Like you said, the IPCC report that came out last week, there's actually a couple of them that are mentioned in this book. I've gotten feedback from people that it just makes you wonder, can you make a dent? And you keep hearing these reports, like we're not really making much progress, we have a shortened timeline. And I'm like, no, there are people out there that are doing this kind of work, you can get behind them, you can support this movement. And business does, like you said, have a very big role to play in this. When I first connected, it was through my work with Orlo Nutrition. And I was so pleased to be able to have the story told through Forbes because so few of these leading edge publications that are so well known really like to cover supplements. 
It's like they tend, and I think this is also present in most mass media, want to cover foods and things that are oriented towards foods and then topics that relate to health, but perhaps less with supplements because it's bridging towards drugs and that's a little scary. And it's been a harder story to tell. But one of the things that we've worked so hard and diligently to do is really address packaging and plastic. And beyond the product being truly sustainable and beyond going to algae for a nutrition source, which has a potential to grow exponentially and use less resources to do, packaging has become so ubiquitous. So this is even something that I talked about on a podcast episode I recorded earlier this week for Nutrition Without Compromise, the other show I host, where we were talking about vegan egg replacements. And this was one of the most exciting products that we came about at Expo West because it really just stood out. It looked exactly like an egg that had been cut in half. But then it's packaged in this dish to display it so that people can appropriately want to buy it. And eat half of an egg is displayed like six wide in a plastic tray that is ubiquitous for the purpose of marketing the product. But again, marketing is so expensive. So we have to look at all of these things, all of these pieces of the pie, the puzzle pieces to design the best way to bring a product to market, the most economic way to do, and then the most responsible way to do. And a lot of these pressures come in from the outside side that dictate that maybe you don't buy the most recyclable or most regenerative inputs because it's simply not feasible. And then you use the excuse of, oh, we're a startup, we'll change it later. I hear this from entrepreneurs all the time. But you showcase in your book ways in which that you stood out and you were able to identify specific leaders in these categories that really are doing it right. Even from the cotton perspective, when we talk about the first things to be really regeneratively farmed from a textile perspective. So I'd love for you to talk about how you organize this book to help provide people with that hope because again it can feel really daunting like the sky is falling and expo west is fascinating i was there too i mean it, for those who don't know it's like the super bowl of the natural food industry and that's a good way to put it i've always said it's like disneyland right and there were so many packaging companies there this time i felt like that were trying to unravel this whole challenge and you've said this i'm sure and i will reiterate this that sustainability is not something you're going to do overnight it's going to take years for a brand and just step in the right direction. In terms of the companies that are featured in the books, the publisher and I really thought about this as to what companies to feature. There have been books that have been written by entrepreneurs themselves in this space. And we wanted to do something that was more journalistic and covered the landscape as to all these different industries, what's going on. And also a lot of the other books in this space were written with a very theoretical or academic lens. And this was designed to be more mainstream. So I really wanted to showcase companies that had shown some success with their models. That means that they had been around for about a decade or coming up on a decade. These are not startups and these are not corporates. That's the other thing. There had been a couple other books that had already covered the corporate landscape. These are many of these companies, in fact, have refused to take on funding for specific reasons because they want to be able to experiment and do some of these things that are slightly crazy. It's easier when you don't have to investors. And so the landscape, I could write about so many more companies in this book and I wish we had more space and time to do that. But we tried to just showcase a few different, not just industries, but even within the chapter on soil, it's not just food companies. We also have a footwear brand and what they're doing to source rubber from the Amazon and what they're doing to work with cotton farmers. So to get people to understand that these issues really can affect a variety of consumer products that you might be interacting with on a daily basis. And we can dig into each of the chapters or however you'd like to, but that kind of is the framework. And then the UN Sustainable Development Goals were always in the back of my mind as to some of the big targets and the big kind of goals 
goals that we're trying to get at. That's why there's a whole chapter devoted to women, for example. You've said a few things that I would just like to touch on from kind of an elementary basis, because if you listen to sustainability podcasts that cover ESG, environmental sustainability goals, you already know really what they are, generally speaking. And you might go, oh yeah, that's one of the early numbers, like number three or whatever on what they're addressing. So can you quickly summarize for those listening what the UN sustainability goals are and how you have covered them in the book? The UN sustainability development goals are far broader. We only have nine chapters. And the idea of the target was really to focus on these specific core topics by 2030 to make some progress. And many of them overlap. So yes, environment is a big one, but it also overlaps with how women work into that story, with how soil works into that story. And so in that sense, we really use them more as a framework rather than saying, okay, here's all of the UN Sustainable Development Goals and we'll go down them one by one. And we tried to also keep in mind that some of them can be a little bit jargon heavy and more geared towards the industry. So how do we make this more palatable for a reader? who may just be interested in these topics, but doesn't live and breathe it, perhaps like you and I do. So we wanted to make it also conducive to them. I enjoyed specifically even just piecing through your introduction because you really do lay all of that out. So, you know, in a few pages, you're essentially running through why you designed the book the way you did and what people can expect from each of the chapters, which I think is a best practice that many nonfiction books miss. Like they might use the introduction to simply tell you about why they wrote the book briefly and then dive right in. But in a book like this, you can similarly in a way to how Regeneration Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation by Paul Hawken is architectured, you could say, okay, I want to read about workforce today. And you can jump to that section. And it's not like you're going to be missing some critical context from the earlier chapters to be able to dive into that. So this means that you can choose your own adventure, so to speak, without missing a beat. And if you're looking into something specifically, use it as a reference tool. So I definitely appreciated that about it. I did not get the chance to read it in its entirety, but I plan to do. And I will just say that your writing style is very accessible. So I want to applaud that. I know this became available on March 21st. So anybody listening to the show or watching it on YouTube can go pick it up. I like having physical copies for books like this. Even though I appreciate my Kindle and I use it as a crutch because I will load books onto it. I have an ancient one, the Kindle Touch that still has like audio jack and I will do speech to text to speed through books and get to know it when they aren't released as audiobooks or when they were early in the game. There's something else that you do here too. There, you do have this section that actually includes some photos, which I didn't anticipate. So can you talk about why you selected them and showing this one, coffee, for example? Yeah, let me just also open up the book so I can talk through the photos with you. I had an opportunity. This book was kindly supported by the Ford Foundation. They gave me a grant that allowed me to actually go and meet many of these entrepreneurs and see their work firsthand. And I felt like that was an important part of it. We can certainly do all these interviews over Zoom and that's fantastic. But to go to my core roots as a journalist, I wanted to go see it firsthand. And when I was seeing it, I just saw that this is also a visually really stimulating story. These are supply chains in the Amazon, in the Himalayas, in the Serengeti. And so to be able to bring a little bit of that 
to the book so that the reader can also visualize it, that these are the landscapes that we're trying to preserve, these are the communities that we're trying to support, was really important to me. And publishing is a business like any other business. And so they've tried to accommodate as many beautiful pictures as possible. We would have loved to have done many more pictures, but that does become costly. So you'll get to see some of the coffee farmers in this. You'll get to see, for example, this beautiful hotel that's in, in the fjords in Norway that's just bringing an approach to slow travel that's so, I feel like, needed. You'll get to see the amazing conservation work of Singita, which is a safari company in Africa. And there's a couple of the photos there, for example, of this really fun startup that's really flourished and grown over the last decade in the UK called Toast Ale that's using leftover sandwich bread and turning it into beer, so addressing the food waste problem. And then you'll get to see perhaps one of my really favorite stories in fashion lately, which is Veja. And I had an opportunity to go to the Amazon and see their work as to how they work with rubber tappers. So I'm just going to hold this up for those watching. So you see the rubber tree and you also see the Veja shoe there. So they are essentially extracting rubber in a sustainable capacity and utilizing that rubber for the textiles and materials they're using in their shoes. Yep, absolutely. And it's a really interesting example in fashion. Two guys who started it with about 5,000 euros 15 years ago and decided they were going to make a shoe in Brazil and went and built that supply chain from the ground up, have refused to put money into traditional marketing. They don't do influencers and celebrities. They're like, nope, we're going to invest that money in our supply chain and in our people. And they've made it work and they're a very successful brand today and they're becoming quite trendy. Everybody's seen wearing them. Yeah, you'll get a glimpse of kind of the folks behind all these stories. I'm a bit jealous. And I will say, I'd love to interview those founders on this show. So if you will make a referral, I'd very much appreciate it. I'm one of those individuals that seeks to buy the most sustainable products possible and often goes to used. But one of the things that you simply really can't do that for is shoes. And might go through, as far as my running shoes go, one pair every six months. And it's been challenging to find like just daily kickers that I love and that I can really get behind. I do also really enjoy the brand Allbirds. I like what they're doing to actually mark the CO2 impact of every shoe, but really just to see more players succeed in that space that are doing it right. I think it's just, it's in all of our best interests. And I think that gets back to what the core purpose of your book is to really show that we can do this. We can make the commitment to do this right and still succeed. So I think that's fantastic. I would just add to everyone, actually, if I can, that I think that's such an important point that you just said. Sebastian, one of the co-founders of Veja, said this. He's like, the world just needs more medium-sized businesses like this who are committed to these kind of values. This question of scale often comes up that I'm sure you're familiar with, right? It's like, how do you scale up a business? The answer perhaps is not to have global scale or even national scale in some businesses, right? It's really just to do it effectively. And then hopefully we get replication of this. So somebody else comes along and builds something similar for a different geography. And I just think that's such an important point that you brought up. I have to bring up a conversation I had at Expo West with Miyoko Schenner. So you may know her. She was the leader behind Miyoko's Creamery, right? 
And she took on outside investment and was ultimately exited from her company in about June of last year. So that information didn't become public until about a month ago as we're recording this. So as it stands, she and I, after she was up on a panel with four other business people in the space of vegan nutrition primarily, including though one spokesperson from Dannon, um, she had said, why can't we have instead of one national vegan creamery that's available on every single health food store shelf from Coast to coast with the same assortment from North Carolina to Southern California, why can't we have 5,000 regionally successful vegan creameries and get back to more of this artisan perspective where we're supporting local economies, where we don't have all of the money tied up in supply chain, middlemen, and ultimately distribution costs. I mean, it's it's nuts that we will send a product like that from 5,000 miles away to somewhere else to feed people when it could be regionally or locally produced and sustain a community within it. Perhaps the number isn't 5,000 vegan creameries, but to actually build a world where we are appreciating the craft a little bit more and connecting with the brand in a more real way. I think the same thing applies even to when you're looking at simple fresh food procurement, right? You'll hear a lot of doctors and medical professionals say, eat food that's in season. When it's in season, you're going to get more nutrition out of it, right? But we like apples and we want to eat apples year round. So we're going to get the apples that are coming from South America or from wherever. They're being shipped and trucked over vast differences in refrigerated containers. So the cost of that apple from a carbon perspective increases and we're not eating in season. So how can we ship things? And I just like to point to farmer's markets. If you are able to go to a local farmer's market and buy locally sourced foods, and even in those cases, often locally supported crafts, because there might be a stand that's selling ceramics that they make that you could use to serve your food to your family every night, can get to a space where we're supporting a maker economy and still have capitalism thrive if we want to. Or we can unmake it. And if we unmake it, what does that look like? I think that's something that we're still working through with models like the proposed donut economy or something to that effect with social benefit corporations and how they're constructed. So this is all, I think, an untold story. We're not necessarily working to do that with (laughs) your books cover to cover, but I'd love you to comment on that and perhaps what is already broken in sustainability that can be fixed. Absolutely. And this goes beyond food, right? So food is the natural example that we think of. But what these companies are saying in this is that whether you're a small boutique hotel in Norway and you're doing it just in Norway to preserve that ecosystem, you replicate that across different ecosystems, you end up with the same effect. The food analogy is great because I think a lot of this in a way has stemmed from the food movement. And even if you look at organics in the 60s and 70s, it started with food and it's really expanded beyond that. But yeah, most of the companies I interviewed actually were really not fond of the word sustainability. They all really didn't like it. A lot of them said, what are we sustaining? This is a completely broken system, which is why I looked at the words restore and regenerate. Regenerative, when I started working on this book was back in 2018 now, wasn't as popular of a term as it is today. But the concept really made sense. When you look up what restore and regenerate mean, it's about bringing life into something. It's about replenishing something, which is far more appropriate than sustain, which is sustaining a broken system. And that's why we use those words in terms of a restorative and a regenerative economy. Now, 
all of these words can often be misused. And that's a whole other conversation that we have to be weary of. But I do think that this conversation of enough and scale, has I've had this conversation many times with people now. And that means we have to change the mindset. The big problem is funding and investors, right? So if you have an investor, they're going to push you to scale because that's how they're going to be able to profit at the end of the day. Which is why, again, I mentioned many of the founders really made an intentional choice not to take on investors, or at least not to take on investors initially, to see if they could do it the old-fashioned way of bootstrapping it or friends and family. And that does give you far more flexibility then. As a I have examples from my history where we did not take outside investment and built from loans. One key example is Nordic Naturals, which is in the fish oil space. And I worked with the CEO over the course of a decade to build the market penetration and brand to the point where we were in 37 markets around the globe and over $100 million in annual revenues which was a huge success at the time for the natural products industry. And one of the comments that you are Opheim shared with me early on and is something that I took with me even as I chose to go to business school and get my MBA from Santa Clara, Santa Clara University, which is also his alma mater. He said, look, the moment you take outside investors, you're not building a 150 year old company. You're building a company that will survive today and maybe for the next couple of decades, but it won't survive in the same stretch or the imagination or the dream of what you'd hope to build. And so I think he's right about that. Ultimately, when you go public, market pressures change the company. When you sell to another organization, market pressures change the company. We've already seen that happen in the natural channel many times over with so much consolidation occurring. Now Amazon owns Whole Foods. How has that changed things? And I could, I could create a laundry list for you if you wanted to read it, but I don't think anybody really cares. They just want to get their Whole Foods at a reasonable price and conveniently. So I shouldn't say that. I know some people care. It's just harder to shift the patterns than it is to go with the flow. As it stands now, when we talk about bootstrapping companies, when we talk about doing it differently, we can also be building companies that can sustain the same vision and concept for our generations to come. I think Patagonia is a great example and not everybody is going to be Monsieur Chouard, but they are, I think, aspiring to potentially follow in his footsteps in some small way. So what are there specific companies that you see really leading that charge or how would you like to highlight them from the book as part of this conversation? I think B Corp is probably the place to go if you want to find the companies that are leading the way in different industries. In apparel and outdoor, yes, Patagonia is one of the big names, definitely. But there are also many others. And there's Vivo Barefoot, which is mentioned in this book. And since you're a runner, you might find it interesting, which is with this barefoot shoe kind of concept. And the founders of Vivo Barefoot, Galahad and Asher from the Clark's family, so they were part of the Clark's shoe business, but they wanted to to do things a little differently. So they started Vivo and they've really tried to champion many of the various ben kind of aspects of building a sustainable or regenerative business in the sense that they do have a repair program. They really think about their sourcing. They work with artisans to get many of their materials as well. They have a foundation that does philanthropic work. So there are some of these other players that are out there. They were one of the first companies to innovate with this material that's made from algae bloom, which is featured in the book. We have excess algae bloom now happening in all kinds of water systems. And there's an innovative company out of Mississippi that's trying to turn it into a foam material that can be used 
used by the footwear industry and other industries as well. And so they really took on some of that. And that's Bloom, right? Yeah. I've talked about them before on the show. I love what they're doing. It's wonderful. They're another example that's in here. And then in the food landscape, there's quite a few. So there's Lundberg Family Farms, which is mentioned in the opening chapter with soil. And they're an interesting company too, right? Because they have this amazing heritage, their multi-generation farming family. And they really made a consumer good that's ubiquitous. You can get it everywhere from Trader Joe's for their rice crackers to more of the health food stores. So there's quite a few examples in here of brands that you may have heard of also that are leading the way and then some new ones that you can discover. But I think the B Corp movement is at the core of it. And while there has been some discussion also about whether or not we like the direction that B Corp is going because they're allowing some of the bigger companies to come in, at its very core, if you look at the, the score that companies are getting through B Corp, which you can do online, then you can really see their commitment because B Corp is far more holistic. It's not just about one supply chain certification. So I think that's a good place to start if you're not as familiar with the landscape. And they also size their fees for your organization. So it's not going to be something that smaller company is blocked from attaining. This is one of my beefs. So with much of the certification industry, it is an industry, right? So you want to go get regenerative organic certified, but you have to employ uh, people to manage that process. And it can add a layer of administration, but it's also a check and balance. So I understand that. But I think we can also enter a world where suddenly you have a product package that has got like 16 labels, 16 icons on it and just confuse is the customer. So that's that's where I think going to a few key certifications and paying attention to them and saying, okay, what does it really mean can matter. I agree with you. B Corp is great. I also love this concept of a tri-sector approach as I had brought Jens Smallbach on this show to talk about social benefit entrepreneurship and how you can harness the power of public as well as private and social to create enterprises that are for the common good and which can benefit from public support meaning government support and funding. So I think we need to be looking at all of these solutions and and rethinking how we create the new world of business. Perhaps it can get to more of this kind of donut economy where we're all more a part of it. And so much of the power and the compensation isn't just concentrated at the very top. I completely agree. I think people often ask, is there like a one-shot solution to this? No, there really isn't. It's going to be far more collaborative and from different angles. And in terms of certifications, several of the companies that I interviewed don't like certifications as well. And they really focused more on traceability instead. So Veja, for example, has put up the receipts for how much cotton that they're buying from their farmers on their website. You can just see the transaction. Falcon Coffees, which is in the chapter that's about supply chains, has been very transparent with their buyers about the entire cost involved with the supply chain. And they're now on a mission to map out their own carbon footprint. So they've brought on a climate scientist to help them do that. So yeah, and they work with a lot of, so they're a middleman, they're a trader in the coffee industry, but they've worked with like the Allegro coffees, the Stumptowns, the Blue Bottles that you would have heard of. So yes, completely. I think there is a real frustration, you could say, with certifications in general, but there's also just an understanding that if you don't do some of them, then anybody can claim anything and then we end up in this greenwashing space. So it's kind of putting that middle ground that works for both. I've looked at chocolate as a, for example, and coffee, 
And one of the complaints that I've heard from small chocolate makers who are trying to work in this really farm to table perspective with chocolate is that fair trade doesn't go far enough. And they don't feel because they're besting fair trade practices that they should bother with the certification because they really use it as this, hey, we're doing things a lot better. And if they don't go far enough, then I'm not going to just put their seal on my package because it's going to market what they're doing, which in my opinion, isn't far enough. And so they're perhaps, you know, relying on a little bit of their guerrilla marketing tactics to communicate the message. But the same reality remains too, true. Confused people aren't going to make a decision to buy. And if your chocolate bar is $4 more than another one on the shelf next to it that has a fair trade symbol and that consumer hasn't really understood your message, then what's the impact you're going to make? And so my sense when it comes to these sorts of things is that when there's a leader in the space that really is doing a pretty darn good job and they're raising the bar, join them and then lobby them from within to raise their standards because you can do that and it can work. And if you keep communicating about that, then you know what? You're going to push the industry to change. That is what, you know, I have done in prior walks with the fish oil space. And now for many reasons, I've gone to the algae space because I just don't believe we have a sustainable world when it comes to the way commercial fishing operates. But that's another discussion for another day. I think that's a really great suggestion, like a really constructive and helpful suggestion is that if you want to make change happen, do it from within because scrutiny does help. I think scrutiny is actually good. Like when sometimes when we talk about media scrutiny on a specific topic or certification or organization, um, it could lead to change. It could lead to something better at the end of it. So it's not a dead end in that way. And I also hear from a lot of marketing folks who will be like, you know what, a customer has maybe 10 seconds, 30 seconds to look at your product and get a sense of whether or not they want to try something new. It's hard to communicate if you are that small chocolate maker, everything that you're doing, right? Just on the front of your package. And that's where marketing really goes into play. So another great example from this podcast for anybody interested in diving into the world of coffee, I interviewed Mokhtar Alhanchali of Port of Mocha, and he is going to Yemen to get his coffee and paying farmers three times what the typical rate is for the coffee beans that he then roasts and offers for products out there. Now, I know his product is a lot more expensive. And I think he's also one that was like fair trade is so far below what I'm doing. I'm just not going to bother. That being said, we need to be able to understand the messages that are in front of us and attention economies are wearing thin. How long? Again, 10 seconds to make that decision. Sometimes I think that's being generous. And it also depends on who you're speaking to. So I feel like I live in this bubble because I live and breathe this stuff and I'm speaking to these folks every day, much like yourself. But if you talk to, and I talked to a group the other night that didn't know what a B Corp was, right? So I'm still just explaining that concept to them because that's not part of their everyday life. Lexicon. So it is a balancing act. And if we want to get these concepts to be more mainstream, you have to start somewhere. And part of that is also affordability and accessibility, which has been a big criticism, right, of this space is that it's not affordable enough. And I was trying to be sensitive to that in this book as well. So like in the travel chapter, people will say sustainable travel is more expensive. We have three different price point travel experiences that you can do, starting with something that is very affordable and reasonable, starting and then going to something that's in line with what the others are offering, and then one that's premium. And so I think that's another thing to keep in mind is just 
if we want more people to come on board, we got to make it as affordable and accessible. I still want to go. My friend Reva Becke, she has a South American travel agency called SA Travel Agency, I think. At any rate, she hosts ecotourism experiences that go even to the Galapagos Islands. And I have never been on that type of a trip. But with two young children, you're now paying for four tickets and I haven't made it work yet. So most of our ecotourism has been somewhat local and bring areas in our backyard is something that I realized when I traveled to Australia halfway around the globe and drove all over the place there to, to access beautiful points that I'd probably never get back to, visiting the 12 apostles on the South Coast or going to the Grampians and hiking their Grand Canyon, that I had never been to the Grand Canyon in the United States and I still haven't. And so even just looking a little more local and seeking out these sorts of experiences can be a greener way to travel. And that's presently what I'm doing with the kids because we're not in the passport range yet. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I made that decision. It's also every time you get on a plane and do international travel like to Europe or South America or something, it comes at a cost too. I have to tell you, I've so enjoyed this conversation thus far, but I know our time is limited here. So I wanted to offer you the floor. If there was a question I haven't asked that you wish I had, I'd love you to ask and answer it. And if not, then, you know, what sort of closing thought might you leave our audience with? The closing thought that I would share is that when I was putting this book together, you have 30 companies. They may not all succeed. We might pick up this book five years down the road, 10 years down the road, and a couple of them may have failed or shut down. But I think that's not a reason enough to not do it, right? And not try to do it. And so that's the important message with this book is that these are companies that are just trying and they're starting from a place of how do we solve a problem? I'm often being asked, like, do you see a common thread between all of these entrepreneurs? And the common thread I would say is that they're not coming from a place of let me build a business that will accrue wealth. They're coming from a place of let me build a business that will solve a particular problem that they see valuable and important. And I think that is a different lens for business. Oftentimes we are building businesses, whether it's for personal wealth or for the wealth of others. But can we start from a place of such strong values where you're really looking at how do I solve this one issue through my one business that may only impact a couple hundred people and stick with it through the ups and downs for a longer period of time. So that was something that I really saw throughout this book with all these entrepreneurs. They're very driven, very values oriented people. And that change is then trickling down through their organization. And they may not be successful in the long run, but I think it's a really worthwhile exercise to look at what they're doing because there are lessons to be drawn from that. And the other closing thought that I would say is that what we've iterated in the beginning, that this is not something that comes with a checklist that you could just check the boxes and say, okay, I built an ethical business. It's really going to be a journey and a process. And there's going to be a lot of hard questions, some of which will be brought up today as to whether or not you decide to use certain certifications, certain supply chains, certain materials, packaging, all of that. So I would also say that I see a lot of scrutiny online. Sometimes that's helpful. And sometimes that's a little bit like really, it can be a, a bit harsh to someone who spent maybe months thinking about something before they launch a product. And they're like, oh, but you have a little plastic, this thing on top that seals it. So therefore it's not sustainable. It's not all or nothing. It's really like they're trying, they're making their best effort. And just for consumers to know that sometimes, like you were saying, it's hard because the materials are not there yet or the price not there yet. So give them a little lead 
leeway on that. But if this book helps you think about how business can do better and then apply it in your daily life, I think it's been successful. I'm just going to give one example because I have to, and it's recent, but working with Orlo Nutrition, we're of course sharing our story and the packaging and all of that in social spaces. And I had someone comment, stop with your woke agenda. And I'm just like, okay, so we're going to get these sorts of critics. And the reality is that there are going to be trolls in every effort. And most people that are working in the world of brand building, whether it be for their personal brand or for a product they're bringing to market, they rely on social media for a lot of this stuff. And there's always going to be the naysayers. So I've worked for a while in this space and I've known a lot of people who might call influencers that simply say, you just have to remember that they have their agenda too and let it fall like raindrops off your back. No big deal. And I know it can be hard sometimes to not take these things personally, especially when you're emotionally invested in what you're doing. But we can also use those moments to say, how could I communicate about this differently? What else might I do to make this a little better? And not to respond to comments that are perhaps negative with emotion. I think that's it. Like when you do respond, choose wisely. And if you're second guessing yourself, sleep on it. <laughs> you can never make everyone happy. And that's for sure. We've learned that. Yeah. And sometimes polarization actually helps us a custom a company succeed. So just think about Nike and Colin Kaepernick, I think is how you say his last name. They doubled down with him. They faced some criticism, but overall it ended up the brand continued to grow and thrive and they made a social choice for the things that they were going to back. And I want to close with one more thing since we may have captured some business people for this episode in particular. And that is just that it used to be people were afraid to become B Corps because they were afraid that they wouldn't be able to go public. That is now a thing that has been put to bed. You can still go public as somebody who is a certified B Corp. So why don't we continue to push in this direction, push for positive change and build businesses better. Absolutely. I think what we've learned in the last 10 years is that there is no perfect model. So you find what works for your business. And I'm sure that there's a way to fuse purpose into it if you'd like. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Asha. This has been my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. To connect with Asha Chabra and get her new book, visit ashachabra.com. That is E-S-H-A-C-A-H-A-B-R-A.com. Or you can just visit the show notes for this episode and click on the link. For complete transcripts, expanded show notes, and bonus features that you won't find anywhere else, I encourage you to visit caremorebebetter.com. While there, you can sign up for our newsletter and receive weekly tips such as the hashtag BeBetterChallenge. Subscribers also receive a welcome gift, which is our five-step guide to help unleash your inner activist. If you have a feedback, <clears throat> if you have feedback or you have a suggestion for a future show episode or topic that you'd like to see us cover, please send me an email note to hello at caremorebebetter.com, or you can just click on that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner on the website and leave me a voicemail. It's easy, and I'd love to hear your voice too. Thank you listeners and watchers on YouTube now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can even build regenerative businesses to help heal planet Earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.